Raja, how you doing? Um, I'm good. <laughs> glad to be back. I'm glad to be back too. Miss y'all, people. What's up, people? We're back with episode 15. Last episode, episode 14, we talked about um, home remedies in the historical context to which they were created and how we still use some of them today. I'm feeling like a hot toddy myself. Um, yes, that was often used as a remedy for common cold and flu symptoms. Yep. Let's get it. Let's get it. I'm Angela the mom. I'm Marjorie the daughter. And, and this, this is Talking Brown Sugar. Sugar. I want some of your brown sugar. We're in the sugar bowl today. Mama. You got something first? I got something good to say. Do you? Mm-hmm. Tell them. We talk about it all the time. We see it all the time. Y'all know people in your family, friends, girlfriends, boyfriends, whatever it may be. The smartphone. Who is smarter? The smartphone or the people? My problem is people have smartphones. They get them. They upgrade them. They want to stay with the new techniques of Thumbprints, face commands. What is it? Face what? Recognition. Excuse me, people. Face recognition. You know what I'm talking about. I don't have that on my phone. I got an Android. But anyway, uh, sometimes house. Dun, 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 dun. But anyway, I have friends who have phones. And sometimes I say, well, use your notepad. Use your folder to move things around so you can have space in your phone. But how you use that? I'm like your phone newer than mine. So, as smartphones make people a little slow, or should they have them? And when these little kids get these smartphones, they don't they don't need all these apps. That's why they get who? What's that lady? That funny looking lady coming on there? Momo. Momo scared me. Shoot, I said who the dad called Momo? Yes, Momo is creepy. She was scaring me too. Um. But with the smartphones and people not utilizing them to their full capacity, just take a second and go through a quick little tutorial. Just, you know, play around on your phone. Do more than, you know, download app, check out app features. But literally, um, I've had plenty of people who didn't know how to do something. And so you really think I'm going to sit here and teach you how to do it when you can Google it and figure out how to do it yourself? And to, well, in less time than it would take me to walk you through it holding your hand? Not saying that I wouldn't, you know, help some people out with certain things. Some things you can, sure, you know, but we have so much at our fingertips, our thumb tips. Just take two seconds to look it up. You don't even have to go to the library all the time unless you need Wi-Fi, you know. But it could, your phones can do so much, especially if you have a smartphone. I agree. I mean, if you're paying this money for these phones... Take your time. Get your money's worth before you trade it in or try to upgrade. You haven't even learned how to use the first phone. So why in the world are you going to get the second phone? You can't keep it with your password. Put it in your own little notebook pad they got in the phone. Simple, easy, breezy. Or better yet, do Stone Age. Get your pad and paper, honey. It ain't going to hurt. It ain't going to tell nobody. Yes. And my, um, I guess, just random thought. I was just thinking about this um, since we've been away. Um with people, you know, just 
coming in and out of out of your life, whether it be a friend, somebody you're dating, family, whatever. Um, just you know, ask people how they are before you ask them to do something for you, and don't expect people who have a committed or vested interest in keeping a relationship with you, you know, romantic or not. Um, don't expect him to help fix you. Like, yes, they can support you in your journey to health, uh, better stability, financial stability, stability, spiritual elevation, whatever it may be. Sure, that person can be there to support you, but it should not be their responsibility to fix and, you know, hold your hand or all these certain things, unless that's something they communicated that they're willing to do. Like, when you're supporting somebody, I don't think you should have to sacrifice yourself or your things to lend support, you know. You can't pour from them to cup. I agree. If your foundation is strong and you bring somebody over and their foundation is not even equal, sometimes you have to think. You learn from your mistakes. Yep, that wraps up the Sugar Bowl. On to more show. Sugar Cubes, a.k.a. the news, where we put a little sugar in your cup. My news is coming from the news and observer. Will painted ponies find a new home? Topic, carousel at Northgate. People, we got to do something about this. They're trying to raise money for the carousel. All right. We know that Macy's have closed. We know Sears and Robux has now on the chopping block to close, too. So the carousel is not making much money as they used to. They're bringing home $400 a day or less because sales are down and a lot of the clothing stores, food court area, fooderies are closing down, too. So they're looking and talking to people who they can finance a storage to hold these beautiful carousel ponies because Northgate Mall had opened up in 1960. I didn't even know it was open for that length of time. But now since we have these other mega malls, things have changed. They looked at the holiday sales, which didn't bring a lot of revenue to keep the mall sections open. And investors have looked other ways to revamp the mall to bring people in and other stores. So they're just on a hold to see who's going to pick up the tab, open up new stores, but it's still not looking good for the carousel. I like the carousel. I remember my kids would ride on the carousel, and I would take them because it was such a relaxing little little ride. It was a simple ride. And plus, you know, it, it takes you back to your childhood if you didn't go to somewhere where it had a carousel. So my thing of it is... I hope somebody invests in the carousel for storage because it's been around for decades. But the traffic has slowed down at the mall. So now the ponies are slowing down too. That's a sad story. Um, I don't know if they are going to be able to, yeah, save that, the ponies. Maybe they could get the ponies put in a museum or something. That would be cool. Um, Or if... Maybe it might be only to save um, a couple of ponies, you know, and save it in a museum. But. Yeah, it would be nice because Durham has really made a big difference. People come around looking for that when they come to Northgate Mall because it's a unique experience. All malls have their different tastes and flavor, but Northgate always felt comfortable and it felt pretty safe for you to go to. And it's a good experience. 
But malls all over are struggling to keep their doors open for various reasons, but mostly with the advent of um, online shopping. So, you know, just finding ways, I guess, to keep up. Well, I guess the walkers are going to take that over. Virginia First Lady under fire for handing cotton to African-American students on a mansion tour. The governor and Mrs. Northam have asked the residents of the Commonwealth to forgive them for their racially insensitive past actions. Lee Dozer Walker, who oversees the Office of Equality, Equity and Community Engagement of State Education Department, wrote February 25th to lawmakers and the Office of Governor Ralph Northam. Okay, the kids went on a field trip. And she asked him a little question. Here we go. A Virginia State employee had complained that her eighth grade daughter was upset during a tour of her historic governor's residence when First Lady Pam Northam handed raw cotton to her and another African-American child, asked them to imagine being enslaved and having to pick the crop. But the actions of Mrs. Northam just last week did not lead me to believe that this governor's office had taken seriously the harm and hurt they have caused African Americans in Virginia, or they are deserving of our forgiveness, she wrote. Northern's often said the first lady has met with experts at Monticello to learn about how to present a more full and accurate picture of that period of history. At a luncheon for state legislators, spouses a week spouses a week ago, Pam Northam invited a speaker from Monticello to deliver a program titled How Oral History Gave Voice to Monticello's Enslaved Community. In her statement, Pam Northam said she will continue working to thoughtfully and honestly Tell the story of the mansions and slave workers. I'm still committed to chronically the important history chronicling the important history of the historic kitchen and with continue engage historians and experts on the best way to do so in the future, she said. So the mother of the kids were very upset because she works with the government herself. She felt to stay calm, and her kids realized the harm had made an impact on them. So the mom put up a protest, and this was the outcome. It was unfair. I didn't hear about the protest, um, but why would you ask? Like, even if, and I know she's, um, Northam made comments saying she didn't specifically pick um, or choose the African-American kids to give the cotton to. But why did you give the cotton to the kids if you just said the um, class or session you took said something about oral history and how it keeps the story of the enslaved people alive? Like, oral history means it's a history passed down by people who experienced it. You didn't experience that slavery, so you shouldn't have been the one in charge of passing the cotton out. Well, my theory on that... They were the only three African-American kids that was in the field trip of the day. 
And I feel she could just put it on the table and ask the kids to touch it, but don't ask them how they would feel if they was, in, you know, if they was enslaved slaves during that period because they wouldn't, you know, they've heard stories. But for her to say that, I thought it was very rude. Yeah, it was poor judgment and just, just, um, telling of how people don't have to consider things. You know, you can live with your blinders on when you have privilege. And that's what the mom was saying that uh, she felt that way because she didn't know who she was at the time. Northam didn't know who the parent was, and she felt that if she would have showed her total black card, there might have been problems. And her kids and her made contact enough to you know to stay calm during the field trip, which I thought it was very cordial because we learned that from past. Be on your best behavior when you're out because people are waiting for you to. To be upset or show you true colors when sometimes people are colorblind. Yeah, that's just ignorant. She was, um, like, it's not just about her asking them to pick cotton. She only asked those three black um, children on the field trip what it would like to be a slave. Like, she didn't ask all the kids to consider it. She asked those the three that were African-American. So it's it's just like I can't I can't you can't give so many people passes, especially when they're of a certain age of expert. Like you're the first lady or whatever of the governor, you you know better. And they have such a tender age, and there's a lot of things going on with them when it's eighth and ninth graders. You know these are still kids; they're not thinking about that. They they reading it, but when they're physically faced with someone of another color and they ask them that question, that's not right. That that makes me just appalled. I know they're gonna carry that, so there's no way, yeah, to, um, you know, right the wrong that has been done. It's just sad. Yes. So my article is from the Huffington Post. Um, the title: Man who bought five hundred and forty dollars worth of Girl Scout cookies is arrested during um, a drug bust. Um is Dietrich Fat McGowan. He's 46. He was arrested in South Carolina on Tuesday by U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration on charges related to selling and distribution of heroin, cocaine, and fentanyl. According to uh, court documents, the arrest was first reported on local station WSPA. Um... So he was caught because the photo went viral and they had already um, been watching Mr. McGowan. And they made the bust after finding that he was able to smuggle more than $1 million in cash from South Carolina and outside the U.S. um, to pay for the drugs. He faces a maximum of life imprisonment if convicted. Um, I don't know. I thought this was just an interesting story because... um, when you think about where your morals are, you know, it was nice that he was trying to buy out the cookies because he didn't want the girls to be out in the cold. So he said, I'm going to buy all the cookies so you guys can get outside, get from out of the cold. The parents thought that was, you know, such a heartwarming thing, posted online and went viral. And so, you know, going viral can be both good and bad for people. In this case, it was bad for Mr. McGowan because um, it just put like another spotlight on him. Yeah, I thought it was such a heartfelt. When I first read it, I said, wow, that is a good deed. Uh, then next thing you know, here they got him. I was like, oh, man. 
Well, I figure we see so much go on in the world as we talk now, and we see money handled, dirty money handled all kinds of ways. Sometimes you find out about it. Sometimes you don't. But if you're playing with the right people, nobody knows where the money came from. Yeah, there was no um, comment from his attorney or anything about it. Um, And then one of the parents said, in my opinion, he is a very good-hearted person who did a very good deed. So I think it's good that they weren't trying to take away, you know, where his heart was when he was trying to get the girls out of the cold. Even though, you know, him selling those that class of a drug was pretty dangerous and contributes to negative things. But it was an interesting story. Uh, my next story is a little upbeat. Did y'all know Idris Elba? Idris Elba is also now a rapper. Um, he is also going to be in a new Netflix show where he's a DJ turned Manny. Yes, Manny, like in This Is Us. Um, he has a new song out where he's rapping, um, and he has been DJing for 10 years, um, more than 10 years, I think over a decade. Um, he goes by Big Driss or Driss the Londoner, and he has a song out, Boasty, with Steph London, uh, Wiley, and Sean Paul. Here's a little quip. That was just 10 seconds, so, you know, legally we can play that, just in case y'all didn't know. Um, FCC laws, and, you know, you're allowed 20 seconds of audio media played without having to see copyright. But, yeah, it's a nice song. I like the beat. Yeah, it's good to show that he's versatile. Besides him being an actor, he can venture out and be somebody else and still have a good time. And you know what? He's representing. Yes, people, you can be good at multiple things and do all those things. You can be a class clown on Twitter and Facebook, and you can also write in journals, peer-reviewed articles, all that kind of things. So don't let people try to box you in. Do your thing, shine bright like a diamond, and go just be great. Be yourself. Be great. Today's health tip is... Drinking some cranberry juice to help your liver and your kidneys. Take less mileage on them. And it's like a little detergent. It cleans your body out, makes you feel healthy. Cran grape, y'all. It's time for the main discussion. What are we talking about today? Numbers. The Daily Numbers. Did you know the Daily Lottery was originally a Harlem game? Then uh, Albany won it in. This article comes from the New York Times. We just want to preface the story and information we're about to give you a little history. In the early 1920s, Casper Holsten, a black man from the Danish West Indies, worked as a porter for Fifth Avenue store and liked to study the clearinghouse totals published in a year's worth of newspapers um, he had saved. The clearinghouse was an operation that managed the exchanges of money among New York banks on a daily basis. It occurred to Holston that the numbers printed were different every day. Until then, lottery games existed, but the winning numbers were often chosen in unreliable ways that could be um, produce rigged results. 
According to the 2010 book plan, the numbers Holston came up with an ingenious solution. Using those clearinghouse numbers, he said, for the newspapers, um, the totals to produce a random combination between um, 000 and 999. He came up with the daily three-digit winning number for a new kind of lottery game, and his invention became known simply as the numbers. It was an immediate hit and quickly created a sprawling underground economy that moved through Harlem and other black communities in the U.S. For 60 years, the numbers um, reigned supreme as New York City's preeminent daily lottery game until about 1980 when the state decided it wanted in. Um, in Detroit, it says my own mother Fannie Davis ran numbers business for 34 years. The business provided for us, her children, a solid middle-class life, including a spacious family home, beautiful clothes, and college educations. And thanks to our inheritance, generational wealth. We, you know, we talked about that on the show. While the numbers were illegal and therefore had to be kept a secret, I knew about a girl with a parent who ran numbers. Her name was Francie. And she lived in Harlem, and she was real to me, even though she was, in fact, a character in the book. When I was 10, my mom gave me a copy of Louise Merriweather's novel, Daddy's a Number Runner, a fictionalized account of an of the author's life in 1930s Harlem, where the numbers helped sustain black folks through the Great Depression, when lucky players could turn a hard-earned nickel into $30. A nickel into $30. Think about inflation. Um, the book, published in 1970, was forwarded, um, forwarded by James Baldwin, who wrote, The metaphor for this growing apprehension of the iron and insurmountable rigors of one's life are here conveyed by that game known in Harlem as the Numbers, the game which contains the possibility of making a hit, the American dream in blackface. Horatio Alger revealed the American success story with the price tag showing. I don't know about that black piece. I recently reread Meredith's book, still the print, still in print, thanks to the feminist press at the City University of New York. And her story helped me remember how vital numbers were to black life. But the New York Times archive enlightened me about the fight of the city's black elected officials, activists, and everyday people to preserve the cultural and economic institution, and how much was lost and stolen when New York State usurped the game. Much of that loss was jobs. In 1971, the Times reported that an estimated 60% of the area's economic life depends on cash flow from numbers. So a lot of your game was paying people. People had jobs with the numbers, 60%, which employed estimated 100,000 workers across the five boroughs. Numbers men also in many ways fill the void left by formal economy and different to black residents' needs. They bankrolled many small businesses from bars to rents, restaurants to corner grocery stores and also saved many businesses from bankruptcy. The bankers helped get out the vote, um, buttressed black civil rights groups, and contributed to black political candidates' campaigns. Um, the numbers money provided a foundation from which the stellar careers could be launched in everything from athletics to public service, service to entertainment. Colin Powell's father bought their family home with proceeds from hitting the numbers. 
um, Harry Belafonte's uncle. Then he ran a numbers racket and was an early example of success for the singer. The singer Lena Horne's father, Teddy, was a numbers operator. Um, Stephanie St. Clair, also known as Madam Queen, was um, the one and only woman to run a successful number game in Harlem in the 1920s and 30s and became both an activist and major black employer. Um, such figures are often pillars of the community. As early as 1971, when off-track betting interests were looking to move in on the numbers action, Harlem activist James R. Lawson testified in favor of maintaining local control of the game before a legislative committee. We intend to run at come hell or high water, he said. Six years later, Lawson proposed in a radio address directed at Governor Hugh Carey that the black and Hispanic numbers bankers buy franchises for 4,000 state licensed numbers operations. The lo- the goal was to ensure that African Americans benefited from the sanctioned lottery rather than fall victim to a poor tax burden. Yet Lawson and other black leaders, U.S. Congressman Charles Rangel among them, were not ultimately successful. By 1980, the street-run business in New York was generating an estimated $800 million to $1.5 billion a year. That's why when lawmakers in Albany proposed a similar daily pick-three lottery a year, a coalition of city and state officials feared there would be a crackdown on the numbers and tried to stop the move. If the traditional numbers game could get legalized, the revenue could circulate in the black community, and the number of workers could be legitimized and keep their jobs. Um, to the largely white assembly, as the City of College of New York historian Matthew Vaz has pointed out, the black and Hispanic participation in the numbers game were merely tax evaders and criminals. Also, New York legislators sold the public on the notion that the state-run version of the lottery would funnel a portion of the proceeds to education. What a bunch of baloney! This anticipation of the lottery revenue, by the way, prompted New York legislators to relocate education funds to other parts of the state budget. Still, folks tried to fight back and march through the streets to Governor Kerry's New York office. A sign posted in Harlem Numbers Parlor asked, um, does, the Gov, does Gov Kerry know how many people are working in the numbers industry? He is sending our families back to welfare. We don't want welfare. We want our jobs. We don't want welfare. We want our jobs. Black people were not lazy. That was in the article. That was me. Raja talking. Mm. Um, nevertheless, the state-run daily lottery number began in September 1980, and in subsequent years, the numbers game mostly faded away. And most of the photos you see in the article, you should check it out, New York Times article, um, you see criminal aspects of the numbers rather than everydayness, the communal reciprocal and congratulatory qualities. Only one image captures the whimsically designed tip sheets used to help players choose a number to play. So they're saying a lot of the pictures that were taken to, you know, provide a story about the numbers game, um, try to depict people as criminals, you know, like people playing dice in a corner in an alley or, you know, just doing something they shouldn't be doing, looking over their shoulder while they're playing the numbers games. Yes, this is a such a touching story. It reminds me of my grandfather. He used to run numbers, and he would tell me little stories about if you get caught, how you could hide it, or you could go to jail. But remember, a lot of people had different gimmicks, and they would hide in cereal boxes, coffee cans, Act like they had groceries, and they would go to their different neighbors' houses and collect the numbers and keep up with the money. And this, sometimes they'd be having, like, well, to them, 
$300 to us right now might not be a lot, but back in the 70s up until the 80s, this was a lot of money when the people started getting older in age, like 50 and 60, and he would collect it and show them their winnings, and they would trust him, and people would be waiting for these little numbers. It was like a, a little thing for them to do, safe for them to do, especially if you had somebody you trust come around, collect your little biddings, and you could win, or they would have like little parties, and they would play cards, plus you had the number runner. But they tried to always make it, the economics means like it was a criminal crime when black people was making real good money. When they saw they was making money, they wanted their foot in it to tax them and to make them like the bad person. But when they was winning and having their own independence. So I give a shout out to John Adams. He was a number runner and he was a good one. And I thought um, the author of the article pointed out another thing that we still reference today about dreams. Um, it was saying the picture that captured old Aunt Dinah's dream book of numbers and Gypsy's witch dream book of numbers. Too many simple yet illuminating um, publications used as Bibles for number players. The encyclopedia books interpreted dreams by assigning three-digit numbers to different symbols um, and nearly any image or experience that could appear in a dream. So basically the book, um, you would look up what kind of dream you had and it would provide a corresponding three-digit number you should play based on your dream. Like, I rode the bus. Your number is 367. Three, I make sure I said <laughs> Yes. But um, we still talk about that now, how dreams, you know, we say, what does a dream mean? Or I had a dream that mom was on the bus and... My hand was itching, so I'm gonna play these numbers. Or you know, the, you see a bus, and you see the number on the bus. Why do I keep saying the bus? Yeah, and when you go somewhere, you see an address, or you see a show, and you see the address number on their building. Or somebody said, "Well, my lucky number is so and so and so." You was like, "What? I had a dream about that number." Then you go play the numbers. You might be the lucky one, like they say. Your hand gets itching. Or they see a string on your clothes. But they say you put it in your pocket. That's some money. In this um, section of the article hit hard. Um, going back to the dream books. It says this one is key. way that numbers is intricately connected to black folks. Larger sense of hoping for a better future. Because many black folks. You know thought it was the spirit. Blessing them with a specific number. Or certain numbers to play. You know. The come up was coming if you had this type of dream and these numbers matched and you hit, you know, and it was saying that um, the larger sense of the black community wanting to be closer to achieving the American dream through the lottery and the numbers that were created by us for us. Um it says, the New York State Lottery Commission seemed to understand this, eventually adopting the slogan, all you need is a dollar and a dream. Um, but by then, Harlem had known that for decades. So, we created the lottery, mm-hmm. black and Hispanic people. Mm-hmm. It kept the numbers running. A $1.5 billion industry. Mm-hmm. And it was broken down. Via laws and systems. That's why I always tell people to vote, 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 vote. I'm going to keep saying that. Vote, go vote. Not just vote in the primaries, but vote in your local elections. Every time they say something about voting, just go before they take a right to vote. Like I say, were you living better last year compared to this year? 
Think about it. Vote. Yeah, and then how they promised, you know, one of the things that helped pass that legislation, which is why we have the system we have today, um, about them giving some of the proceeds of the lottery to education. You think about how that is when you have segregated schools, these raggedy buses that aren't safe for children, um, children in classrooms sharing books because they don't have full sets. The books are falling apart. They're outdated. Teachers stressed out because they have to go out of their, um, you know, baby um, pay stub to pay for their own supplies to teach students who don't have scissors, crayons, other things to make projects, computers. And they want to cut out certain <laughs> curriculums like music. It might not seem much to... Somebody who's just listening, all their kids are grown. But think, music was a way of learning, counting, relaxing, enjoying, learning something new from a different culture, a different person who comes to visit the school. They're cutting that out. The lunches are that's going crazy. And, you know, they like, school lottery? I don't buy it. I know. I learned math. I learned math um, by learning how to read music through chorus and violin, art was my little place to escape you just get crazy with some crayons color pencils and learning about textures and clay just different things because you learn history behind these things and you know science with colors and how the light refracts to make a rainbow different things you learn that you learn through experience and I think that's different ways for kids to learn and when you take away different ways for kids to learn or you expect kids to learn all one way, you know we are leaving some kids behind. And what does that say to our future? Talking about the lottery is going to donate. Y'all, we got to do better. And that's why Tupac was questioning, you know, how do we have homeless people, but one person can be, you know, the richest person overnight by playing the lottery. Um, but we still we still hold on to that dream of hitting the numbers because we all still play. Because it's really that bad out here in these streets. We still say, I'll be glad when I hit. Yeah, and people are still playing all kinds of numbers. You got your ball tickets. You know, people get this little board. I'm not going to tell you the rest of it. And, you know, they take their little funds and buy them a couple of tickets and hoping it might be baseball season, football season, basketball. They hoping that they hit just a little piece of the pie. And they say, why people come here for the American pie? This pie is more sour than what it makes to be baby. Yeah. And I wanted to um, shout out the author again. The article that I read from was called The Daily Numbers was originally a Harlem game. Then Albany won it in. And it was by Bridget M. Davis in the New York Times. And as always, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Talking Brown Sugar, on Twitter at Talking Brown Sugar, and you can email us at talkingbrown.sugar at gmail.com. I'm Angela. I'm Raja. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening. We out.